Well, please turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. In the circles that I interact with, the question is often thrown out, what is the greatest threat to the church? Sometimes it's asked, what is the church's greatest need? Now, to be clear, there is no ultimate threat to the church. Jesus promised to build his church, and he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The true church is secure in God's sovereignty for all eternity. That is so clear in Jesus' words. However, when many people ask the question, what is the greatest threat to the church, what they mean is, what is the greatest threat to the church's teaching of the day? And what is the greatest need of the church in order to combat against it? I mean, the answer, of course, has been generally the same for all of church history. What is the greatest threat to the church? Well, it's the slew of false teachings that come against the church at any given time in her history, which makes the church's greatest need always the same as well, a commitment to God's truth over whatever false teaching is attacking the church. But what makes the question more interesting is when you add the word today. What is the greatest threat to the church today? Meaning what is the greatest false teaching against the church today in this period of church history? Well, that's when the answer becomes maybe a little more specific. Nothing new, but maybe old false teachings that are back in rotation from years past. What is the greatest threat against the church today? I could think of a few things, a man-centered prosperity gospel that fills so many of the radio waves. Maybe it's a, a secular view of sexuality and identity. Maybe it's a, a compromised view of gender roles and manhood and womanhood. Perhaps it's a misinformed view, a worldview concerning large societal categories such as things like race and social status and justice. Perhaps it's a faulty dependence, um, a misplaced zeal on political allegiances and matters of liberty. These things make the church's greatest need what it's always been. A commitment to the inerrancy, the clarity, the sufficiency, the authority of God's word over these things. So as, for example, secular views of sexuality, identity confront the church, the church needs a commitment to the inerrancy of scripture, to believe that God alone knows best concerning these categories. As gender roles are blurred more and more in our society, the church must maintain a commitment to the clarity of scripture as scripture defines manhood and womanhood. A misinformed worldview and critical theories are promoted by the world. The church must maintain her commitment that promotes God's word as sufficient on, God, on truth, even on matters pertaining to social structures. As political lines are drawn and personal liberties are threatened, the church must prove that her ultimate authority is not in the state to dictate actions, nor is her ultimate authority in oneself to fight for liberty above all, but her authority lies in another kingdom as it's revealed in scripture. 
These things are often discussed when it's asked, what is the greatest threat to the church? But I want to consider the question from a little bit different angle. I want to ask it like this. What is the greatest need of the church inside of our walls? And I'm not just talking about Abner Creek specific. I'm talking about inside the walls of the church in general. In other words, the true believers all across our globe who are committed to things like the inerrancy, the clarity, the clarity, the sufficiency, and the authority of Scripture, as we share that identity and commitment as a, a church family across our globe, what is our greatest need inside of the walls of the church? You know, as, as we are committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, as we stare the world in the face, what is our greatest need as we share, stare each other in the face? Is it increasing our evangelism? Is it growing in our worship? Is it increasing in our sacrificial love for one another? And those things are certainly needs of the church. But as I think about how I grew up in church, as I think about how I went to school for the church, as I think about the different Christians that I've interacted with in my life in the community of the church as I've served in four different churches on staff, here's what I'm absolutely convinced of is the greatest need of the church inside of our walls. The greatest need of the church inside the walls is for the church to better understand what the church really is. How many people feel seats and pews every week without an understanding of what am I actually doing and what am I actually professing as being a part of this group? What am I a part of? It's the greatest need inside the church for the church to better understand what the church really is. So during the month of December, I'll be preaching a topical series focused on that, the very nature of Jesus' church. If you're visiting with us, if this is new, first time that you're with us, you should know my commitment in preaching on a regular basis is to preach through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse at a time. But sometimes we'll take a particular topic, a particular subject, we'll see what the Bible has to say as a whole. So on this month in December when we celebrate Jesus coming, we remember the purpose of his coming. And foremost of that being that it would be to glorify God and reconciling sinners to himself through his redemptive work. This is what he said his coming was to do. But in his coming, he made this bold declaration. I will build my church. You can even see the context of that statement if you turned to Matthew 16. Look at Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This was a climax moment for the disciples. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. That's not his last name. Jesus is the anointed one. God's promised one, the seed that we've been talking about in Genesis, the promised seed to come that will crush the serpent's head. Jesus is him. And as soon as Peter says it, Jesus says, you're right. And I will build my church. I will build my church. In other words, I am the Christ and you are Peter. And what will the Christ do? Will he overthrow Rome? That is burdening the Jews so badly? Will he reestablish some sort of Judeo order and put the Pharisees in their place? Will he throw a parade? I'm the Christ. No. I will build my church. He is the Christ and his mission is to build his church. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not familiar with church, if you're not familiar with Christianity, this is why Jesus was born. He, God's son, though he was truly God in every way, he was born into a world full of sinners like you and me. And yet, he never sinned. Not even once. In thought, in word, in deed, he never sinned. And he never sinned so that he could live a perfectly righteous life without a mark on it that no one else had ever done. But here's where the twist in the story comes. Even though he had lived a perfect life, he was punished by dying. But punished not because of his sin, he had none, but punished because of our sin. You see, Jesus paid the penalty for sin for everyone who would turn away from their sin and who would turn to trust in him to be the savior for their sin. And those who repent and trust in Jesus receive his perfect righteousness that he had built up for living a perfect life. He took the penalty for sin by dying and he gave the righteousness that they need to live forever with God. And we know that that exchange was approved by God because three days on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He eventually ascended to be with the Father. You see, Jesus said, I am the Christ and I will build my church. But first, he had to die for the church. He had to purchase the church. So that anyone who would turn away from sin and turn to trust in him could become part of the church and the church could continue to grow. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the first step was to pay for her sin. Now here's where it becomes really weighty for us. If we are part of the church that Jesus intends to build, shouldn't we make sure that to the best of our ability, we are functioning according to the blueprint that he's laid out? If a church is not functioning according to the blueprint, 
we have to ask, is it really a church? If you're building a structure and you design the structure and you set the blueprints for the structure and then it is starting to be built and you come around and you check on it and it's not anything like what you intended, wouldn't you say, this is not what I intended? If we are the church that Jesus is building, should we not make sure that we're functioning according to the blueprint that he's given us? Now that's weighty. It means we can't just do whatever we want. In this month, as we remember Jesus' coming, I want us to reflect on what he came to build and to examine, are we in line with that? I've said the greatest need inside the church today is for the church to better understand what the church really is. Now, here's why that matters. Because over time, an institution, if it doesn't have a strong grasp on who they are or what their identity is, why they exist, who's in charge, then before long, that institution becomes something it never was intended to be. If you watch a football game with someone, anyone that's over 40 years old, and at some point during the football game, someone gets a roughing the passer penalty, you are likely to hear at some point, well, back in my day, we used to let them hit each other, right? It had morphed into something that is unfamiliar. If Babe Ruth were alive today, Would he understand players getting paid $500 million right before a work stoppage? Or would he say, what are y'all fighting about? If the forefathers of this country listened in on Supreme Court decisions and how they might impact Roe v. Wade, would they say, why is this even a question? See, over time, unless an entity, an organization, an institution remains zealously clear on who they are and their purpose, soon, if they don't remain clear, that organization will morph into something that was never meant to be. Let's apply it right with here with Jesus. If Jesus walked into any American church on any given Sunday, if he sat in our worship services, if he sat in our elders' meetings, if he listened to people express what they wanted in a church, if he examined our church documents, if he watched how we fellowship with one another, and if he watched how we cared for one another, and if he watched how we helped one another avoid sin, would he look around and say, this is the church I built? Or would he say, what are you doing? This is why this matters. If the church is to be what Jesus built it to be, then we must first understand what a true church really is. Now, some of you might be thinking, I've been in church for 20 years. I've been in church for 40 and 60 and 80. I've been in church all my life. Why do I need a sermon on what the church is? If that's you, I would just ask you to hang around. If you've been here for 50 years, it's not like you're not going to. So just hang around and we'll talk about it. How many people walked and died on earth at one point thinking it was flat, right? Over the next few weeks, I want to cover many areas of the church, but today we must start with the most fundamental of questions. What is the church? What is the church? How you answer that question affects everything else because what you think the church is 
will affect your expectations of the church. What you think the church is will affect what your expectations are of the church. So let me illustrate. When my family goes to a football game, we all have different expectations and purposes for going. Lincoln and I probably go to the football game, or I know we do, we go to the football game focused on the game, the X's and the O's, the first downs and the touchdowns. Collier goes to the game with the purpose of let's enjoy some good family time together, right? My girls go to the game thinking this is for the cotton candy that we're gonna get, right? We all go with different purposes. We're going together with different expectations and purposes and we get there and in each of our minds, we're there kind of for a different reason. See, in a similar way, we must understand what the church really is, what the purpose of the church, the expectation is for the church, so that our expectations will be in line with that and not just something that we adopted from tradition or family members or what everyone else is just doing. So if, like, for example, if you see the church's primary purpose as being a place where this is where we get together with friends, and that's all it is, then you'll lose sight of engaging with those people who are different than you. Maybe if you see the church's primary purpose as let's grow a large crowd on a Sunday morning and that's the primary purpose, well then you'll be tempted to think that when numbers are kind of down, then something must be wrong. If the church's primary purpose is to be a place where my children and my teens can get plugged in and they can make friends and they can bond and if that's the primary purpose, well then we'll just be constantly looking for more and more and more for them. If the church's primary purpose is to be a, a place that meets the community's felt needs, well then the church may morph into an institution that focuses more on societal needs, temporary, than individuals' eternal needs. If the church is a primary place where all are accepted into fellowship no matter what, no questions asked, then the church is likely to compromise on some of God's biggest moral standards of truth at some point. See, what you think the church is will impact what you think the church should be doing. What you think the church is will impact what you think the church should be doing. So, we have to ask, what is the church? So, from the very beginning, I want to make a distinction here between the universal church and the local church. I don't know if that language is familiar to you. The universal church and the local church. The universal church is made up of every true believer in Jesus Christ, no matter the denomination, no matter the location. So we have brothers and sisters in Christ in the universal church in Africa and Asia, Europe, South America. We have fellow Christians in the universal church in South Dakota and Rhode Island, Arizona, Tennessee. We have fellow believers in the universal church in Spartanburg and Greenville and Columbia and Charleston. We even have fellow believers in the universal church in Clemson, but that's a different story. All these true believers in Christ are part of what is called the universal church. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in the most genuine sense, you're part of the universal church. However, Every Christian in the universal church is not part of the same local church. That would be locationally impossible. The local church is specific to individual regions. 
So we are a local church in Greer and the surrounding regions because it is here where we spend the majority of our time living out the commands of scripture. So I may be able to share a burden of my brother in Africa for a week as I'm visiting with him, but the majority of my sharing of burdens and following the other commands of scripture will be with you all who I'm with on a regular basis, part of my local church. See, once you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of the universal church. But then it's important that you identify with a local specific church where you can say that it's here that I seek to follow the commands of Scripture. It's here that I seek to rub shoulders with others. It's here that I'm going to live out the one another's of Scripture. Now, if you're someone who doesn't think that it's necessary to identify with a local church specifically, that's called church membership, then you'll want to be here next week uh, and the week after that because that's where we're really going to be diving into that, church membership on a local level. So on a universal level, you're in the church, but then we must identify with a local church specific region. So, what is, I've asked several times, what is the local church? Here's a simple definition that if you squeezed any word of it, it would expand out more. But here's a simple definition of a local church. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together under Jesus' authority to fulfill the responsibilities that he has given to them. For you note takers, I'll say it once more. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together under Jesus' authority to fulfill the responsibilities that he has given to them. We're going to cover half that definition this week and the second half next week. First, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together. This is my definition, but it's a definition I hope comes directly from Scripture. In a topical message like this, I want you to see in Scripture even the points in the sermon. Local church, group of Christians who regularly gather together. When you hear the word church, your mind should immediately think of a group of gathered Christians, not first a building. See, over time, we've used church in the way of like, Let's go to church, or when was your church built, or the church needs some repairs. It's not wrong to use church in that way. We've adopted that sort of lingo over the years. But the word for church in the Bible is overwhelmingly used to refer to a gathering, more specifically a gathering of Christians. The word that many translations use for the word church in the original language in the Bible is literally assembly. This is why William Tyndale actually translated Jesus' statement, and on this rock I will build my congregation. And if you look at the root of congregation, you see the word congregate, which means to gather in a crowd. So when we think of church, we should start by thinking of a group of Christians gathering. This is why I often say things like, good morning, church. Or if I do the welcome, I'll say, welcome to this gathering of Abner Creek Baptist Church. Not just welcome to Abner Creek Baptist Church, but welcome to this gathering of the church. Because the local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together. 
Now to see this biblically, think of a passage like Acts chapter 8 verse 1. This tells of what happened after Stephen was stoned. Acts 8.1 says this, and there arose on that, great, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions. Now when it says that a great persecution arose in the church, that they were scattered, does it mean that they were persecuting a building? Of course not, that's silly. Clearly when the church is scattered, a building is not dispersed over all the regions. No, the church as the people of God were being persecuted and scattered. So it's okay to say we're going to church. Moms and dads don't hit your kids on the, ta- on the head when they say, hey, let's go to church. Oh, we're not, the church is not a building, we're a people. It's okay to say we're going to church. But it's better if we understand we are the church. The people who profess faith in Christ, who regularly gather together, who have committed to each other in a church covenant under church local membership. That's who make up the local church. So in 2008, when the church burned, that's not an accurate statement. Most literally, right? The church building burned. The Abner Creek Baptist Church was still very much alive. So a local church is a regular gathering of Christians, whether if it's in a building like this or if it's in a basement or if it's in a living room, like many house churches are around the world, the building doesn't make the church, it's the regular gathering of Christians. Now you might think at this point, I mean, come on, that's obvious. Who doesn't understand that? And more so, why does it matter? Why does it matter that a church is a regular gathering of Christians? Well, think about this. COVID showed us many things. And one of which was some really bad ecclesiology from churches. Ecclesiology is the theological word that talks about the study and nature of all things pertaining to the church. How did COVID show us some really bad understanding of the church? Well, how many times have you heard over the last two years or so or you've seen on church signs something that advertise, join us for online church, right? Or attend our online campus. The attention behind that is good, but the theology of it is really bad. If a church is fundamentally an assembly or a gathering, then it is impossible to be a part of an online, ungathered church. Even at the beginning of COVID, when all churches stopped their services for a period, even we recorded services for you to watch at home, we as leaders were very careful not to call it church. Now, I know that's technical, but it matters. Families worship together by singing in their homes. Families listen to sermons. But we were careful not to say this was church. You might wonder, well, Why don't we live stream our worship services? There are good reasons to live stream a worship service. I'm thinking about homebound members, others who are unable to come physically. There are good reasons to do that. I'm not saying it's sinful to do that. But we don't live stream services because I don't want any of us tempted to think that I can basically get what I get on Sunday morning by sitting on the couch in my pajamas watching a screen. I've lost count of how many times I've heard, well, I had church by myself this morning from home. 
That is biblically and theologically impossible. Why? Because church in its most basic form is a gathering, not a watching. This is also why we didn't stay closed for very long in COVID. So all churches, for the most part, used wisdom when the virus first came. We all needed a time to evaluate, okay, what are we really dealing with here? And when we realized that we could still gather while exercising precautions, we did. This is why, like in the 1940s, during World War II, churches in London, like Martin Lloyd-Jones Church, Westminster Chapel, continued to meet, even though their building would shake from bombs landing some hundreds of miles away. Why? Because to be a church means, from the start at least, to be a group of Christians who regularly gather together. How can we apply this further to our situations? Consider this. This is a sobering question. One day when you die, will your obituary tell a lie for you? You say, what do you mean? Well, how many times have I read or heard read in funerals? So-and-so passes and it gives all the details of their life. And somewhere in there was a member at Abner Creek Baptist Church. At First Baptist Church. Was a member at Burnsview Baptist Church. Wherever it may be. And how many times has someone come up to me after the funeral and said, I had no idea they were a member here. Like, I haven't seen them in 50 years. If the church, in the most basic form, is a regularly gathered together group of Christians and we don't gather with the church, are we really with the church? Listen to the exhortation in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. You catch what he says? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. It was the habit in this situation that some were forsaking the gathering. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not the same as those who are unable to come because of physical health reasons. This is not the same as for some of you who during COVID stayed away longer for health precautions. Like, that's understandable. This is not an indictment on our homebound members. This is not an indictment on those who are traveling. The conviction here is for those who habitually neglect the the gathering. The author said, for some, neglecting to meet together turned into a habit, a sinful habit. So like late Saturday nights turned into too hard to get up Sunday mornings. And beautiful Sunday mornings turned into, it's too beautiful to be with the church when we can be at the mountains. Or the tournament is an all weekender. And it's not just one weekend, but it's every weekend. And before you know it, it's just, I got a habit. You think, man, this is, this is kind of personal, getting into family schedules. Brothers and sisters, Hebrews 10, 24, in the text says, let us consider how to stir one another, like something that's laid bare and you, it's not stirred up until you touch it and it comes to the surface. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. 
The church is many things, but I would say it starts here. Is a, loc- uh, is a group of local Christians who regularly gather together. Without a gathering, we have no church. But the local church is not only Christians getting together. College students can do that. Your pre-work devotion with coworkers can accomplish that. Many of your family meals does that. It's not only a group of Christians who gather, but second, A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together under Jesus' authority. Under Jesus' authority. For the church to gather under Jesus' authority means that the local church recognizes that Jesus is the head of the church. This is the exact wording of Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church, speaking of Jesus. So not the pastor's. Elders, deacons, not the state, not the government. Jesus Christ is the leader, primary shepherd of the church. To gather together under his authority is to recognize that Jesus instituted the church. And it's his. His words have dominion over all that takes place here. In fact, the only reason a local church is able to meet in the first place is because Jesus established her. In that Matthew 16 text, Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And notice Jesus' promise is not just to build a church, like he would build a house or he would flip a property and then hand it over to the highest bidder. No, He didn't promise to simply build a church, but his promise came with possessive authority. I will build my church. This is why, no matter how old the local building is, no matter how many generations your family has in it, no matter how much money you give to it, no matter how many sermons I preach standing here, no matter how many committees any of you serve on or how many keys are on your ring, in no way can any of us say with any authority among us, this is my church. Now, this may be your church in that you're a part of it, like I go to Abner Creek, that's my church, or I love my church, or this is my home church. But Jesus is clear when it comes to authority, possession, decision-making, this is his church. And he alone has supreme rights to it. If you're newer to Abner Creek, it is a wonderful thing to join a church, a historic church that's been around since 1832. But sometimes historic churches can have a feel to them like those who have been around the longest really have the authority. One of the aspects that I was taught to take notice of when I was searching for churches and pastoral interviews was to think through the question, whose voice in the church really carries the most weight? In other words, a church may show you a group of deacons, they may show you a group of elders, they may show you a search committee, but it's important to realize who really has the authority. In my first church as a senior pastor, Uh, I remember I held the first deacons meeting at the church and things seemed to go well overall. I thought it went well. After the meeting, there was small talk. Um, 
Everyone seemed to go home fine. I lived right down the road in the parsonage, and I went home. It was late at night. I pulled up in my driveway, and I noticed someone pulled up behind me. The meeting was over. Everyone had already gone home, but one of the deacons had followed me home, and when we got out of the car, he proceeded to deconstruct everything in the meeting and told me how things really were to happen. And see, sadly, this is the case in many churches. There's kind of battle lines, political games, tension over who has authority. I just want you to know, if, if you're newer to Abner Creek, I don't think it's like that at Abner Creek. Those who are respected for their years here, and that's often beneficial because presence allows for trust and credibility to be built. But, I mean, I can tell you as the pastor standing in front of everyone here that I don't know of anyone who plays the power games. It doesn't mean it won't ever happen. We're sinners. It doesn't mean that everyone agrees on everything here. That's not the case. But when I think about the elders, I think about the deacons, I think about people who have been here a really long time, I think of people who want to submit to Jesus' authority above all. They recognize this is not their church. This is not my church. This is his church. And church family, I just want to say, we should praise God for that. There are so many churches that are just riddled with conflict over authority issues. Individuals who fight for authority are often individuals who have lost sight of Jesus' supreme authority. So no church should be governed by authority of tenure, but only authority of Jesus. So if you're new, I hope that will be your experience. And if you've been around a while, I hope you'll fight against every temptation to claim something that Jesus has already said, that's mine. This reality should make us all the more eager to follow the word, right? And not our own tradition, not our preferences, not the latest church fad. It should make us quick to lay down our thoughts, our likes, our feelings. If the church is Jesus's and it is, then he alone gets to dictate the function of the church. Now there are plenty of good churches who get that Jesus is the supreme authority in the church. But then what happens is there's wrestling over the day-to-day. Like, who makes decisions? Who leads? What is the role of the congregation? What is the role of the elders? And those things are important, important enough to where I'm going to speak on them in a few weeks, talking about God's design for leadership, God's design for authority in the church. But for now, let it be sufficient to say that Any authority exercised in the local church must first flow out of the authority of Christ. Any authority that the congregation exercises must be authority that Jesus has given to them. Any authority that the elders exercise must be authority that Jesus has given to them. Because Jesus is the head of the church, we follow his lead. And what we are to be, what we're to do, we're not granted permission to go our own way. We look to scripture to understand who we are to be and what we're to do. This is what it means to gather under his authority. We get together, we recognize he calls the shots, we obey his word. This is half of the definition. A local church is a group of Christians who gather together under the authority of Jesus. Where do we go from there? I mean, is it the case that, well, as long as we faithfully get together and as long as Jesus is Lord, then we get to do whatever we want? No, if you remember the second half of the definition, which we'll get into next week, 
A local group, like a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together under Jesus' authority to specifically fulfill the responsibilities that he's given to them. You could press on that to fulfill responsibilities and it would ooze out the responsibilities that Jesus has in mind. Next week, we'll look specifically at those. What is a local church supposed to be committing themselves to? I wanna close like this. If, if we are to be a church that Jesus intended, well then, we will be a gathered people who live under his authority. An authority that we once rejected, but now an authority that we exult in because we know the joy of submitting to his reign. Just imagine joy in submitting to his reign. This is why we can sing Christmas songs like joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. I don't know if you've ever noticed in a Christmas song like Joy to the World, the connection between joy and authority. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Joy to the world, he rules with truth and grace. In a world where authority is often abused and overextended, is it really joy to gather under authority? It absolutely is if the one who has authority is the king and the savior who reigns in truth and grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us a healthy vision of the church, that over the next few weeks that we would have a better grasp of who we are as the church, what you've called us to be. Lord, please prevent us at Abner Creek Baptist Church from being a people who form to just tradition or, or just whatever churches are, else are doing or just whatever we think is best. Lord, please form us in the model of Scripture so that we would be a healthy church, one that, that you are building, that you are leading, that you have authority over. Thank you that you are building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. Help us to take joy in your reign as the Savior and King. In Christ's name, amen.